All right, can I get a number two with that, please? No. Uh, make it a large. Can I have that with fries and no pickles, please? Wait a second. This isn't the drive-thru. <laughs> Welcome back to the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. My name is Isaiah Leininger. Joining me today, as always, is our good friend Walker Howell. And today we have a very special guest with us. Go ahead and introduce yourself, my friend. Hi, my name is Eric Sinner. So everybody's having a great Thanksgiving. We're recording this on Thanksgiving, or uh, close to Thanksgiving. I'm not sure when it's coming out yet, but uh, regardless of what time it is, we hope that you guys had a great holiday. Uh, or just a great day in general. Yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be Thanksgiving. We hope you're doing well. Every day we should be thankful. Amen. 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 <laughs> and there's the episode. All right. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we brought Eric on. Uh, he's, a, he's a Bible and English major here at Fried Hardman with us, and we're very excited to have him on the show. Very thankful that he could be here. Uh, but we brought him on to help us to st- discuss something in season three. And of course, in season three, we've been looking at doctrinal issues. Things in the church, in the scriptures that confuse people, that there's a lot of controversial uh, or controversy about. There's a lot of different opinions about this. And so we wanted to just take out man's opinion. We just wanted to see what scripture has to say about these controversial issues. And so today's issue is tithing. How much should we give? And this is an issue that is maybe not as prevalent as some of the other issues that we've looked at in this season, but it's still definitely something that a lot of people have questions about. And so we want to go ahead and try to answer those questions the best we can using the scripture, not our opinions, not what someone has told us, but what the scripture says about this issue. But before we can really jump into the episode, we of course have to define our terms. And so in an episode dedicated to the topic of tithing, the term that we're going to be defining is tithing. Oh, Eric. I never guess that. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Crazy how those things work. Yeah. Eric, how about you go ahead and, and help us understand what tithing is in a broad sense? Well, so tithing is one-tenth of annual produce or earnings. Uh, typically, it's uh, taken as a tax uh, for support of church or clergy or something similar. Exactly. So you may have heard this term growing up in church. Some churches still... Uh, require tithes to be paid to that local congregation. And uh, as Eric pointed out, it's usually to help pay taxes. It's usually uh, for, you know, for the church building and church grounds or to pay the minister's salary or you know, for other projects that the church is undergoing. And some of these things are every week. Some of these congregations ask for it once a month or once a year or something like that. But the, the idea is that a tithe is one-tenth, like you pointed out here. It's one-tenth. So 10% of whatever. And this is a, a thing that we saw a lot in the Old Testament. God asked for tithes in the Old Testament. Uh, the first time that we see something like this, and the word tithe is not specifically mentioned in that passage. The first time that we see something like this is in Genesis chapter 14, verses 19 through 20. And this is the passage where Abram... It uh, meets Melchizedek. Uh, Abram has just returned from battle with the spoils of war. And he meets this man named Melchizedek, who is called the king of Sodom. Uh, or, or the king of, or excuse me, the king of Salem. The king of Sodom was who Abram beat in battle. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Apologize for that. But not only was he a king, he was a priest of God. And this was, of course, before the Levitical law had been put into place. So Melchizedek did not have to be a Levite, as we'll get into later. But Melchizedek was a king, he was a priest. And in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 14, we see that he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So again, the, the word tithe here is not mentioned, but we do see that concept of a tenth. We do see that idea of a tenth being presented here. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils of war that he had just won. But of course, this is not in the Levitical law. This is not in the Mosaical law. This is uh, in the time period where God still talked to men face to face, where God still used uh, men like Abram and Noah and Lot and, and all these men, Job, and he would come down and he would communicate with them. This was before the high priestly time. And so we see this idea here of the tenth being presented. It's, it's a foreshadowing of things to come, both in the idea of Melchizedek being a foreshadowing of Christ and Abram giving a tenth to Melchizedek being a foreshadowing for tithing. We jump ahead to a few chapters to Genesis chapter 28. We find there the story of Jacob. And Jacob at this point in his life he has left home and he has worked for his uncle Laban. And Laban, uh, he works for his uncle Laban seven years and in order to, uh, at the, the reward for those seven years is Laban's daughter. But we see here in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob is making this promise, this covenant with God. And he's saying, God, if you provide for me, give me the basic necessities, the things that I need to survive, food, water, clothing, that kind of thing. And I am able to return home in peace then I will worship you, you will be my God, I will serve you, and everything that you give to me, I will give 10% back to you. So again, this is foreshadowing of what is to come. This is uh, a representation of what the Israelites were to do from the moment that the Levitical law was established in Exodus chapter 20, all the way through the point of Jesus' death on the cross. Of course, we'll get into that more later in the episode. Uh, but Eric, when do we actually see tithing commanded in the scriptures? We've seen two examples of foreshadowing so far, but when has tithing actually been commanded in the scriptures? The tithing is not actually commanded uh, by God until Leviticus uh, chapter 27, uh, verses uh, 30 through 34. Would you go ahead and read those for us, please? Yeah. All right. It says, Thus all the tithe of all the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the, of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If, therefore, a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. <clears throat> For every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It, is, it shall not be redeemed. These, these are the commandments which 
the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. Thank you, Barry. So like you pointed out there, this is the first time in the Scriptures that we see God give a specific command about tithing. Like he pointed out, Eric, uh, as he read for us, this is to be both the, the fruits of the land and the fruits of the harvest. So the animals and the livestock, uh, the animals, livestock, produce, whatever it may be, whatever you're producing, you were to give a tenth of that. Of course, we understand, we recognize that God has blessed us with so many things, that God has given us so many things, so many earthly possessions. Asking a tenth of that back is not crazy. It's not, you know, it's not too much. Because if you think about it, we're still getting to keep 90% of the stuff that God has given to us under the, the law here that we just read in Leviticus. So I think it's important for us to, to recognize the fact that when God commanded for tithing to occur, first of all, it was not a huge sacrifice on the point of the people. God had overly blessed them. He had filled their cup so much that it was overflowing that asking for a tenth back was not a big deal. But secondly, there was a reason that God asked for tithes to be given. You know, it wasn't just that God was requiring them to give back 10%. There was a reason for that. So if you look in Numbers uh, chapter 18, verses uh, 20 through 26, um, God says to Aaron that the, uh, the Levitical tribe, um, the Levites, they will have no inheritance um, in the land of Israel. And um, that, the tithing, that 10% that comes from the rest of Israel will go to the priests, to the, Le to the Levites, because of their, the lack of inheritance. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, like we pointed out earlier, a reason that a congregation may take up funds today, may take up tithes today, so to speak, is to support those who are doing God's work full time. Obviously, there are some men, like Paul, who could support himself. Uh, Paul was a tent maker, but not everyone was like that. And under the old law, especially, if you were a priest of God, you were supposed to be serving God. You, were, you didn't need to go out in the fields. You didn't need to work for a living because you were doing the Lord's work. And so God was going to make sure that the people doing his work were provided for. So we see here in Numbers chapter 18, as, as Eric pointed out, that the Levites weren't to have any land. They weren't to have any possessions. They weren't to have anything. We see later in the history of the nation of Israel that there would be some sort of Levitical cities set up for priests who were not currently serving in the temple to live in. But again, that, that wasn't farmland. That wasn't you know, a place for their businesses. That was just a place for them to live when they weren't serving God. And that was also a way for the Levites to be among the people because again, unlike the other uh, 11 tribes of Israel, they didn't have a specific region. They didn't have any land. And so God made sure that the people doing his work were well provided for. So we see this in Genesis chapter 14 and in Genesis chapter 28. We see the foreshadowing. And then in Leviticus chapter 27, we see the actual commandment itself for tithing. And then in Numbers chapter 18, we see God's reasoning for asking of these tithes so that can support the Levites. But there was something else that... Uh, there was another reason that God commanded for tithes to be given, and we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 26. So, Deuteronomy chapter 26 says, uh, Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as inheritance, 
and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. The rest of the chapter, or that passage, um, continues to go on about tithing, as we talked about, but also sectioning off certain amounts of our produce um, as sacrifice for God. And that's just that commandment from Leviticus um, being repeated, as that's kind of the point of Deuteronomy, is re repeating the law. Exactly. So there were a couple different reasons that God commanded for the Israelites to pay tithes to the, the Levites. One was for the Levites themselves, mm -hmm. in order that the Levites could have enough food to eat so that uh, they were taken care of. But also, like you pointed out here, it's a sacrifice to God. That's what the giving was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a moment of reflection to say, God has given me so much, he's blessed me so, so well, I'm going to give part of that back to him. I'm going to make the sacrifice of giving some of the things that I have been blessed with and giving them back to God. And so those are a lot of the examples of tithing that we see in the Old Testament. We see, again, the foreshadowing, we see the commandment, we see the reasoning behind the commandment, so that brings up a question for us. Should we still tithe today? And the answer for that is, simply put, no. And let me explain. With all of these passages that we've been reading in Genesis and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, besides the topic of tithing, they all have one thing in common. They're found in the Old Testament. And the thing with the Old Testament is, as important as it is, as valuable as it is, as rich as it is for us spiritually, we are not under any of the commands in the old law unless they are repeated again in the new law. Now, a, a famous example of this is the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. All right, Those are very well known. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, those are some, just some very broad, basic principles that God gave to the Israelites there in Exodus chapter 20 that really you could find the whole law around those Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments are moral principles, they're ethical principles, but we are not under them because they are in the old law. Now, I will say, nine of those Ten Commandments are repeated or added to in the New Testament. The only one that's not talked about there is worshiping on the Sabbath day. And we'll talk about that hopefully in another episode at some point. But the idea is that these commandments of tithing are under the old law. We don't see Jesus command this at all in the New Testament. Um, if you look in the Gospels, um, Jesus gives the reason uh, you know, why we don't follow the worshiping on the Sabbath is because to give us a day of rest. But he goes on to say that the Sabbath was created for man and man, not man for the Sabbath. And he kind of, throughout his sermons, he battles the legalism with um, saying that that's the reason why the law was in place, not to bind us by the law, but to help us. Um, and that's the same reason why tithing it was so important was to for men to understand, hey, we need to give some of our produce, some of our money as a sacrifice for God. But as we see even today, but especially during the time of the Pharisees, that got turned to very legalist where it's like, okay, you have to do this exactly as it said. That's a really good point, Eric, and I appreciate you bringing that up for us. 
You know, it's interesting when we look at the old law. Again, like I said, we're not under the old law today. We're under the new law. We're under the new covenant. But again, the old law still has a lot of value. Uh, it teaches us about the history of Israel. It gives us the messianic prophecies that help us prove that Christ is who he says he is. But I think a very, very important thing that you should just point out is that the law was there to teach us what is right, what is wrong. It's there to teach us about God and his nature and his forgiveness and all these things. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, to, uh, verse 24 and 25 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So Paul here, he's saying, the old law, that's our teacher, our tutor, our schoolmaster, and was there to teach us about God, to teach us about Christ, to bring us to the gospel. Now that the gospel has arrived, now that we can have faith in Christ Jesus, we have no need of it. And so we are not under it anymore. Again, it's, the Old Testament is still very worthwhile in reading. But when you're reading it, you have to understand the context of you are not under the commandments in the Old Testament unless they are repeated in the New Testament. And I want to emphasize this point by reading Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 is a fairly short chapter that helps us understand what's going on when we say we are no longer under the old law. Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesties in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also has something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you all make things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he also is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and to their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we have this passage here by the Hebrew author writing to Jewish Christians who are trying to figure out what the differences between the old law and the new law are. And obviously, you're missing a little bit of the context here with chapter 7 and 9 uh, helping to build this case further. 
So I strongly encourage you to take the time to read those surrounding chapters. We're not going to do that right now just for the sake of time. But the idea that the author is getting here is that Christ is our new high priest. In the old law, they had the high priest, a man who was up from, of the tribe of Levites, the only tribe that were allowed to be priests. And you would bring your sacrifices to him, you would bring your tithes to him, you would confess your sins to him, and, and you know, uh, bring your sin offerings and those kinds of things. But now we have a high priest who is not of this world. He is in heaven. And he's not serving a thing of, you know, that is a copy or a shadow of God's word. He is serving God. The, the old law was just that. It was a shadow of things to come. Right? You can think of the analogy of, you know, maybe you're standing on a, uh, by a wall and you, you see a shadow rounding the corner. You saw the shadow before you saw the person. That's what the old law was. It was the leading into of the new law. I think another analogy, that's a really good one. Uh, I think another analogy comes straight from uh, the first verse of Hosea 11. Um, Hosea 11 verse 1, if you want to look at it, says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Pay attention to that was a youth. We I think it's interesting to imagine how, how many analogies... Are, that are used throughout the scripture of um, as the people of God either used as his children and then later on as the church we are the bride of Christ um, when it says there that Israel was a youth um, we can we can use that to youth go with the, the old law similar to how a child is going to be a lot more parents can be a lot more stricter on children than the parents will when the kid gets older and that's how I've always looked at the new law, is that the new law is the child is older, they are much more mature, and they now understand, or at least they should have a better understanding of what is right and what is wrong. That's a great point, Eric. And like we pointed out earlier, that's why the old law was there, was to teach us what is right and what is wrong. But here in Hebrews chapter 8, when, when the Hebrew author is writing about this old law and this new law, this old covenant and this new covenant, this old testament and the new testament. He says the old law is now obsolete. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we have a better covenant that's established on better promises. He says later in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Mm -hmm. And the reason that he's pointing that out is because when the Israelites would go and offer sacrifices for their sins, they would offer bulls and goats and rams and sheep and all, all these things, pigeons or whatever. Yeah. They would offer all of these things and, and those animals would be killed and sacrificed on the altar of the throne of God. And the reason that they did that was to push their sins back. Mm -hmm. But like the Hebrew author points out, that doesn't forgive their sins. That just kind of rolls them back until the next time that they offer sacrifices. Mm -hmm. We have a better covenant with better promises because our sins can be permanently taken away from us by the blood of Christ. Not only is he the mediator of this covenant, but he's the one who set it up. And I really like the way that he ends this uh, passage here in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. When, uh, he's pointing out that there's a new covenant. And he says, well, if there's a new covenant, then that means the old one is no longer in use. The old one is obsolete, as he says in the New King James. 
it's ready to vanish away. So an example of this uh, for us to understand on a physical level would be if they passed a law in our county saying that you, you had to drive 10 miles an hour in school zones instead of 15, right? The 15 mile an hour is the old law, the Old Testament. The 10 miles an hour is the new covenant. So you can no longer go 15 miles in a school zone. If you do, you're going to get pulled over because that is part of the old law. You can't you know, talk to the cop who's arresting you and say, well, it used to be 15 miles an hour through here. That doesn't matter, right? Just because it used to be the law, and it's, if it's not the law anymore, it doesn't mean anything. So I really, really love the way that he, he closes off this chapter, and I think that helps us understand the fact that we are not under the old law, the Old Testament, because there is a better one. There's no point in being under the old law or the Old Testament because there is a better one. And you know, the New Testament has, has to talk a lot about this because of what we call Judaizing teachers. And we're not going to get too in-depth with that. But the, the idea basically is when the church first started, the first people who were Christians were people who were Jews. Mm -hmm. And then as the church grew, more Jews were added to it. And then eventually Gentiles, non-Jews, were added to the church. And we see the fact that they were struggling to understand what parts of the old law they were still under. They were struggling to understand what parts of the old law were still applicable to them. And so they were trying to force traditions from the old law onto Gentile Christians. They were making them go through the old law to get to the new law. Just adding in a bunch of unnecessary, unhelpful steps. And that's what the Hebrew author is dealing with here in this book. Is he's trying to help them understand that we don't need to cling to those old traditions because we have a new and better covenant. But so just to kind of bring us back to the issue of tithing, we are not to tithe, we are not to give 10% regularly because that is not a part of the New Testament. That is not a part of the new law. But there still is a commandment and an opportunity for us as Christians in the new law to help support God's work here on earth. And, and, that, and that, of course, is the idea of the contribution. Mm -hmm. right? If you've been to a, a congregation, they may do this, like I said, once a week, once a month, whatever. But there will be a set time in the services where they will stop for a moment and ask for the members of that congregation, not you know guests or visitors, but the members of that specific congregation to give money to the church, yeah. right, to contribute to the work of the church. Yeah, and that's to con like to contribute to give, meaning give what you can. Um, when it's when it's when we're saying uh, for members, and that shouldn't be required for guests. Um, typically, if you're a guest and you just show up to a church one day, um, you may not really know. Hey, is this church right for me? And you don't know exactly. You may not always know exactly where your money's going. And that's kind of a hard thing to really say, but that's, that's true. Um, but as you get more familiar with a congregation, you're going to get to slowly learn how, they, how this particular congregation, how this group of people run things. Um, and you can slowly figure out, okay, so my money's going to go here. And you can figure out, okay, I'm going to give money to this church so that they can use that money for God's work. 
whether that means paying for the minister, whether that means paying for the bills of that particular congregation, um, that particular church building, or it means, or, or to uh, give that money to certain charities. That's a great point, Eric. Uh, you know, with the, with the church that I'm working at right now, uh, of course we have a couple ministers on staff, and so their salaries take up a large portion of the contribution because it's a small church, so not a whole lot of people there. But the ministers take up a, a fairly large portion of the, the contribution, and then the rest of that is split amongst, like you mentioned, paying the bills, keeping the lights on, electricity, running water, that kind of thing, to make our building convenient and comfortable for our members. Obviously, those things are necessities, but they are very helpful, and you know they limit, excuse me, they limit the distractions possible when attending a congregation. Right? Mm -hmm. If you go to a congregation and their lights aren't working or their bathrooms aren't working, you're not going to be as focused on worship as you are. You know, they really need to pay their electric bill. Yeah. <laughs> and but we also try to send money to uh, missionaries in both in foreign countries and here in the states who are doing great work for the Lord. They're doing a lot of evangelism, bringing a lot of souls to God. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kinds of things that the church can do with that money. And again, this is a, a chance for the members of that congregation to support the work of the Lord, to give back to God. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, Eric, it's not important what you give. It's how you give. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a story in Mark chapter 12 that's uh, commonly referred to as the widow and the two mites. And I want to go ahead and have us read that real quick. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. We see that Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in, put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. And so we see the story of you know, Jesus sitting at this temple and all these wealthy folks coming in and dumping in their money bags and making a big show about how much they're giving to the church. Mm -hmm. And then he sees this one poor widow all she has are two copper coins, which in today's currency is basically a penny. Yeah. It's nothing. But that's all she had. She came and she decided to give that to the, to the temple, to the work of the Lord anyways, because she knew that it was the right thing to do. And she knew that God could provide for her. She trusted in God. So she gave all that she had. The story really shows and really illustrates to us the fact that it doesn't matter how much you're giving. That's not going to please God. I could give $1,000 on Sunday or I could give nothing. Scratch that. Let me rephrase. I could give $1,000 on Sunday or I could give a buck fifty, which is basically nothing. And that doesn't matter as much as how I'm giving it. If I'm giving the $1,000 because I feel like I have to do it or because I want man's adoration, because I want people to praise me for how generous I am, then even though the church is going to do well with that money, it's not benefiting me by giving it. The idea is that you have to have the right attitude. We see this especially pointed out to us 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. My brain switched them around on me. Would you like me to read that? Please. All right. Um, as it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Is that the verse that I accidentally said? Uh, chapter 9, verses... Oh, I read the wrong thing. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. It's been a long week, folks. We'll fix it in post. And we'll fix it in post. <laughs> Precisely. Now, now I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's the correct verse. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and then we also see in verses 7 through 9... Uh, Paul continuing this thought, he says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity. And here's the key part. Here's something that you may hear every Sunday. For God loves a cheerful giver. Mm -hmm. That's the attitude that we need to have. We need to be thankful for the fact that we have something to give and that we have the opportunity to further the work of the kingdom, mm -hmm. to continue supporting those who have dedicated their life to serving God continuing to support those who are bringing souls to God. It's important for us to give to the church. But again, this isn't something that we need to do because we have to do it. You can choose not to give. That's your prerogative. But the idea here is that you should give because you're recognizing that God has overly, uh, he's, he's blessed you overabundantly. And also, when we give, we need to do it in a way that is with the right attitude. Another passage that really helps us understand this, this concept of, of giving, Paul makes us, he, we read from 2 Corinthians, but in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the church of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So we see here, Paul, he's writing to the church of Corinth. And the context of this particular section is the fact that in Jerusalem right now, there is a massive famine. The church in Jerusalem is starving. And so Paul has been going around on a missionary journey, collecting funds from churches that he has already established so that he can send that back to Jerusalem so that the Christians there have something to eat. Mm -hmm. And he commands the church of Corinth to have, excuse me, to have their collections ready when he's there, but also to have it ready on the first day of the week. So we see that not only is giving supposed to be from the heart, it's supposed to be cheerful, it's supposed to be with the right attitude, but it's supposed to be intentional. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to lay aside something every week so that we have something to give. This isn't uh, you know, a sh shaming you if you forget to write a check or if you forget to get cash one week. That's understandable. That happens to people. We forget things. But you have to be intentional with your giving. You have to give as you've prospered, and you have to give with the right attitude, and you have to give intentionally. Now, obviously here, in this section of Scripture, 
he is specifically talking to the church at Corinth for the collection for the saints at Jerusalem. And I, I want to make that clear because the context is important, right? But I do think that this principle applies to us today of laying aside something each week so that we have something to give on Sunday morning. And it's a very convenient time for us to do it. Right? Like I mentioned earlier, there's going to be a time in, in the worship service, probably every Sunday, depending on the congregation, but it should be every Sunday, where they're going to stop the worship uh, service for a moment, and, it's, uh, and they're going to pass the plates. They're going to pass the collection trays for the church to contribute to the work of the Lord. And usually, this isn't all, always the case, but usually... Uh, this will be right after the partaking of the Lord's Supper because it's a convenient time to do that. So the idea here is, no, we are not obligated to tithe, but we are obligated to give. And we are supposed to give intentionally, we're supposed to plan our giving, and we're supposed to give with the right attitude. So this is kind of on the topic of what you're talking about with the uh, intent of, um, of giving. Um, so in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, uh, verses 27 through 31, I'm not going to read that. Um, but basically, he's writing in that whole letter to the Church of Corinth about things that they're doing wrong. Um, in that particular uh, verses, those particular verses, um, Paul is saying that the Lord's Supper is meant to recognize Jesus' sacrifice. And it's meant for us to remember. But there is many members of that particular congregation that we're taking it as a time to just to just eat. The point of it is not for us to be like proud, oh, I get to eat all this. And it's the same thing with giving. We shouldn't have to we shouldn't be proud that oh, I'm giving all my life savings to this. If you can give your life if you give your life savings and you're doing that out of generosity, then I can guarantee you that God will bless you. But if you're doing it out of smugness, then I cannot I cannot promise anything. And <clears throat> excuse me, uh, he commands in that same passage that if you are going to partake the Lord's Supper like that, then you should just not um, eat the Lord's Supper at all. And I should—I honestly think the same should go with um, with the giving. That's an excellent point, Eric. Like like you're talking about, giving is less about what you give; it's how you give. It's your attitude; it's your heart that matters. And you know, this doesn't just apply to when they pass the collection tray in the church. Right? This doesn't just apply to that time after the Lord's Supper where you're like, oh, i got to get my wallet out. This is in general. This is giving to people around you who are in need. I think a great example of this is in the early church. Mm -hmm. We see in Acts chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 32, in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, 
having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So nowhere in the book of Acts do we see, especially this early on in the book of Acts, do we see a direct commandment from God or from the apostles to do this. We don't see a command anywhere for people to start selling their homes, their lands, their possessions, and giving that money to the church. What we do see is that Christians recognized that other Christians were in need. And so because of their love for each other, because of their compassion for each other, they sold their belongings, sold their land, sold their possessions, and brought the proceeds of it to the church. And we see a specific example here of Barnabas. And of course, Barnabas is mentioned here because he's going to play a key part throughout the book of Acts, uh, encouraging Paul, encouraging John Mark, doing a lot of great work in the mission field. But we see in the very next chapter a negative example. We see the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They did not give with their heart. They did not give with the right attitude. They give the attitude that we were talking about earlier, about look at me, look at how generous I am, look at how amazing I am, look at how good of a Christian I am. And so they went forward and they, they kept some of the money for themselves, but they told the apostles that this was how much they sold it for. So just to help us understand this, for instance, if I had a piece of land and I sold it for $100,000, and I came forward to the church and I said, I just sold a piece of land for $30,000, and I'm going to give it all to the church. First of all, I'm keeping back a part of the profit for myself. Now, in this instance, you know, if someone chooses to do that, that's within their right. That was their money, their land, their possession. They can do with it as they wish. The problem herein lies with the fact that they proclaimed that they were giving everything that they had made from that sale to the church, when in reality, they were keeping back part of it. So not only were they trying to look better than they were, but they were trying to lie to God and to the Holy Spirit and to the apostles. And we see that Ananias and Sapphira were struck down because of this as an example to the early church. Giving is not about how we do it. Or excuse me, giving is not about how much we give, it's how we do it. It's important that we give with the right attitude and with the right heart. When we give to the work of the Lord or when we give to those around us, important that we do it for the right reason great discussion guys uh i mean wonderful points um and you know ultimately it comes down to the heart as isaiah emphasized on and you know maybe you're maybe you're one who's been tithing uh with 10 percent and giving 10 percent of your funds because it's easier for you to budget if that's how you're doing it then I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's nothing wrong with doing that. If that that goes budget. back to the idea of being intentional with your giving. Right, right. And so uh, and so, if you're doing it for that purpose, we're not trying to say you're doing it wrong or that you're doing it uh, with the ill intent um, or whatever. So we're not trying to make you change your budgeting around or whatever. So you're, you're doing it with a purpose, and so, so keep on doing what you're doing. Um, the whole purpose of this is for you to understand that God doesn't expect you to... Um, to give some extravagant amount. He wants you to give as much as you can um, mm-hmm. back. And that ultimately comes from wherever you stand in life. And so not everyone's going to be on the same page uh, with their giving. But he just wants he just wants your giving to be um, meaningful. He wants it to be purposeful. And, uh, you know, the churches today have gotten into the um, trend of doing it online. And as much as the online giving is a great thing, I also think it can be a very dangerous thing 
because we forget the purpose of why we're giving. And we can easily fall into the trap of it just automatically comes out every week and we don't really and we don't really think about, hey, I'm giving this to the church because of this reason. And so uh, if you do online giving, that's okay. Just remember every week whenever Sunday comes around that you're giving a portion back to the Lord and what that really means. Um, and if there's anything else we want to add on that before we wrap it up. I mean, I, I kind of, I've, I've already mentioned this, but I kind of go back to that verse that I read in uh, Hosea verse one, 11 verse 1, where basically the whole point of the old law is God sending the guardrails for his people. There's nothing wrong with looking back at the Old Testament and seeing what they did. The problem, and Jesus emphasizes this in the Gospels, is because of legalism, how they do it and why they do it is wrong. And that comes to really anything, um, especially when it comes to giving to, back to God. Great points. Great points. Uh, I really appreciate you guys coming on the show and, and helping us discuss this, this important topic of giving. It's been a really good episode. I really appreciate you two gentlemen. Uh, but for those of you at home, there may be something that we said or something that we didn't discuss that you have questions about, whether it be on this topic or another topic. If so, we would love to hear from you. We would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you and study the scriptures together. If there's anything that you need, we would love to, to be able to fill that need as best we can. We have a Facebook page, Through the Eyes of Jesus Podcast. We have an Instagram page, TTEOJ underscore podcast. We have a Twitter under the same handle. We have an email, info at TTEOJ.com. We have a phone number. 731-439-9671. And that's why we keep them around. <laughs> <laughs> Point is, there's lots of different ways that you can reach out to us if, we, uh, if you need to. And again, we would love to be able to be here for you as best we can. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your constant support and encouragement. This podcast would be nothing if it were not for you guys at home listening. So we're so thankful to have such a great audience uh, such as you guys. And if there's nothing further, then Walker, go ahead and close us out in prayer, please. Father, we love you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we get to come together. We get to open up your word. We get to study another portion from it. We pray that we can be more intentional about what we give back to you. We pray that we can uh, be people who give cheerfully, who give uh, willingly, who give with the intent to further your kingdom, with the intent because they love you. And we pray that our heart is always set on the right reasons of giving. It's not set on the reasons of just wanting uh, attention or it's not set on the reasons of just trying to show off. We, we pray that we can have a pure heart whenever we give back to you, Father. Be with us as we go throughout this life. Help us to become uh, better uh, stewards of your word. Help us to become better stewards of our money. And help us to become uh, better stewards in your kingdom. We pray all this in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.